0: As they go back, if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, we read verses 9 through 11. You remember earlier in the year we went through verses 1 through 7, so we're going to spend the next few weeks through Advent uh, finishing up Revelation 21. Revelation 21, beginning of verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Let's pray. Father, we give you our attention and we thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. We think of our children who've gone back to children's worship, and we pray that you will move in their midst. How great would it be, O God, that if in the midst of this time in which they are being taught to worship you, they come to know you. Lord, would you let that happen? Would you bring these covenant children to faith that they might put their trust fully and completely in you? And for us, Lord, as we begin to consider this passage, we pray that you'll give us a depth of understanding and a strength of faith that we may follow you wherever you lead and that you will place upon this congregation the distinguishing characteristics of your church. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen. So 2021, as you know, we've, we've been considering the, the topic together, the theme that's kind of guided everything that we talk about as far as to be um, heading home. And uh, really the, the seeds for this year were, were planted in my mind going back to the early 80s as I became a Christian. And uh, one of the, the books that I read was, Where is God When It Hurts?, I asked that at the 830 service, and I asked how many people had read it, and we had one. How many have read Where's God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey? Yeah, okay, so clearly this is the sanctified service. I'm just saying. But, um, but, but what, a, what a tremendous book. As, as Yancey wrestles with the age-old question, if God is a good God, why is there pain in this world? Um, and, and it's a, a, a tremendous and a poignant question. And, and some of the things that he does is he, he interviews and, and tells the story of a couple of individuals who were paraplegics. Uh, one who was a, an Olympic gymnast who uh, uh, broke his neck, and, and uh, the other was uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. And the difference that uh, in this uh, uh, tragedy, um, the one individual who had been a believer before then turned away from God and then Johnny, who was kind of nomin- uh, nominal Christian, really came to faith and has had a tremendous ministry and They both faced very similar injuries, but the effect was entirely different and He, he walks through that and through his his studies on this, he comes into contact with Paul Brand, Dr. Paul Brand, who uh, is a pioneering work in the field of leprosy. And it was uh, Dr. Brand, I believe, who discovered that leprosy is different than we usually think of. We think of leprosy as, as kind of you know a disease of the skin where your skin begins to deteriorate and, and fall off, and he began to see that that isn't it at all. But the reality is what leprosy does is it, it deadens your pain sensors and the extremities, to begin with, so that you can't feel pain. So an individual, particularly think in a a rural community, may may see something fall into a fire and they know, well, that doesn't hurt, so they reach into the fire and they take it out of the fire and give it to the person that dropped it. No big deal, except the the, the tissue has still been damaged, but there's no pain, so there's no real reason to get it treated, and so it becomes infected and it becomes, so all of the, the skin issues are actually secondary issues to the disease, and what the disease does is it stops the ability to feel pain. I think about how tragic that is then. We can't feel pain. And what he, what he pointed out was, the, the, what pain does for us is tell us, as I put my hand over here into the fire, as I get close, it starts to hurt, and I pull my hand back because my hand is saying, you don't belong there. That's why it hurts, right? Pain tells me, first of all, stop it, right? That's what we learn. Stop it. Pain came into this world with the curse. So that God began to put pain in our life in this sin-cursed world so that we wouldn't be satisfied here. So that we would always long for something else. So that living in this sin-cursed world where sin is, 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 is present, we want to say, stop it. I want to move away from that. and I want to go to that place where there is no pain. Where there is no sorrow. And I want to head home. And that, that was the, the seeds of, of this last year and thinking about the fact that, that we've had a year with a lot of pain in it, right? Okay, a couple years. They've been hard. They've been difficult. And what if, what if a part of what God is doing with the whole COVID thing is that God is inviting us to look for something beyond here for that day when we don't have to have masks ever again? when we're completely free from that, when we're completely free from the pain that this disease has brought. And what if he's brought that in order to point us to head home? And I think he has. I think that's a a significant part of what he's been doing. Think about, why did Jesus come to earth Okay, we're celebrating that with our, our Advent uh, candles, and we do that each year, and we're, we're thinking about the, the birth of Jesus, and what, what did he come here to do? He came here to die for our sins, right? Right? But he wasn't just dying for individual sins. Yes, he was dying for individual sins, but his picture was bigger than that. He had a plan, and that plan was designed by him before he ever created anything, before he called into existence, before there was the earth that was formless and void, before he said, let there be light. He had a plan which was to redeem a people for himself, to redeem a church. Jesus came to earth to perfect his people, to perfect his church. That's why he came upon this planet. That's why Christmas occurred. That's why the first advent, we turn our attention to Jesus coming to accomplish that. This year I want us to be focusing not on that moment of him coming for the first time, but a little bit more of his coming for the second and looking at the goal, the, the purpose for his coming, which was to perfect his church. Revelation 21, 9 through 27 is showing us that redeemed church. It's showing us that beautiful church in all of her glory, giving us a, a hint of what it is like and a picture of what he is going to eventually accomplish and what will be ours. And in verses 9 through 11, he gives us the first glimpse. Now, if you meet someone and you want to describe them to someone else, what's the first thing you say about them? Right? Now, you, you may say, oh, yeah, I, I met so-and-so. Oh, well, who's that? Well, he's bald. Right? Because it's a distinguishing characteristic because most are not. Right? Some of us are, are approaching it and trying to be more distinguished, in our, but uh, others are, are well ahead. Um, but we, 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 we might use that as a distinguishing characteristic. Hair color is one of those things that we'll use regularly to describe people, right? Or if you meet uh, uh, someone like Shaquille O'Neal and you want to describe him to people, what's the first thing you're going to say? He's, he's 7 foot 80, right? I mean, he's just, he's just, he's just huge. He's just massive. He's, he's just, right? And you're going to, why? Because that's what stands out. That's the first thing. Now, as you get to know, you begin to see so much more than just tall, right? And, and you're able to describe that, but, but that's where you, you start, that, 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 that initial distinguishing characteristic. I think we see something of that as John begins to describe the church because you notice that's precisely what he's doing. He says in verse 9, come here and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then what does he show him? The New Jerusalem. What do we draw from that? Either the angel's a liar and said, just tricked him, you know, it was a bait and switch. Oh, come see the bride. and No, no, I'm going to show you the New Jerusalem instead. Or, which is not likely, or the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. It is the church. And what he's describing for us in 9 through 27 is a picture of the church. And 9 through 11 is the initial, here's what I want you to see. Notice this. And there are three distinguishing characteristics that I want us to look at. And not to just look at them and go, oh, isn't that nice? But to look at them and to say, you know, that's what the church ought to be. As I think about where the church, what its ultimate goal is, isn't it good if we begin to move in that direction now, right? Right? I want to begin to see that lived out among us. And so that's the reason for looking at these. So the first distinguishing characteristic that we see is that we, the church, are intimately related to Jesus. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? And and sometimes we look at that and say, well, yeah, it is a religion too. And, and it, it is, but, but there's something that's being said in that statement that I want us to think about. There's a truth that's there that I want us to, to recognize the significance of it, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. A religion, for the most part, means adherence to a set of ideas, Right? Adherence to a set of ideas. Now we find that even within uh, sects, within the the, the Christian religion, that within Christianity we have different uh, uh, groups. We might have uh, Calvinists. Have you heard of them? Right, Uh, Calvinists. What is a Calvinist? A Calvinist is someone who holds to the five points of Calvinism. Tulip, right? T-U-L-I-P. believe in total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And we can break down all of those, but that's what a Calvinist is. It's an individual who holds to these, who adheres to this set of ideas. We might talk about fundamentalism. Now fundamentalism, before it was a four letter word, actually was a a part of Christianity at the end of the uh, 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. There was a rise of liberalism that was denying a a number of foundational truths within Christianity. And there were a group of individuals, primarily at uh, Princeton uh, Seminary and in the Northern Presbyterian Church, who began to found what was called the fundamentalists. And the fundamentalists said there are five key doctrines. Now the Northern Presbyterian Church, one of General Assemblies had to say these are things that are required for ministers. You've got a hold of these five fundamentals. Um... The five fundamentals are, first of all, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe in a verbal plenary inspiration. The second is a belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The third is a belief in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that he took our place and died for us. The fourth is we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the fifth is we believe in the miracles, as they're, they're stated in the Bibles. Now what's interesting is the power that liberal Christianity had at that moment that the, the Presbyterian church had to choose these as these are essential. And as we, we look at some of the, the uh, uh, moving away from uh, the biblical teaching within the PCA, we see, okay, well, it it's didn't start here. It's happened before this, and we see it again. But there's that, that movement away. And so they said you have to hold to these five fundamentals. So a fundamentalist was someone who adhered to these set of ideas, right? I compare that with Luke chapter 23 and verse 42, where we read, and he was saying, this is the thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You notice... He didn't say to the thief, when he says, remember me, he didn't turn to him and say, well, tell me, what is the chief end of man? Right? Describe to me justification. Right? Do you hold one part, two parts? Do you hold them both? Hmm?" Right? There's none of that. There's no catechism that took place between them. What did Jesus say? You're going to be with me. He spoke to a relationship that he had established between himself and this man. You're going to be with me in paradise. He says to the man, both of us this day are going to die. That's what we have in front of us, but that's okay because we're going to do this together. I can't imagine more hopeful words at the moment of your death than to hear the Lord Jesus Christ not explain to you the fine points of the Westminster Confession, but instead to simply say you're going to be with me in paradise. Think of Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, where we read, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Jesus did not walk up to Matthew and say, Follow my teachings. Right? He said, Follow me. He said, Matthew, enter into a relationship with me, a relationship that will be determined and and demonstrated by your following after me, by your closeness to me. I think this is what the idea is in the the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's trying to capture this reality. We want to look at that relationship for the next few moments and to see that as we we think about this intimate relationship with Jesus, we recognize that he is our husband. Looking back at verse 9, it says, I'll show you the bride the wife of the lamb. There are two words that are used there. The first is bride. Actually, it's the, the word from which nymph is found. And it speaks of a young bride, specifically on, on her wedding day. And, and that would be the picture. And the second is the, the the experienced wife who has loved her husband for years and years. And he speaks of them as the church in that terms. Now, there, were, there are times, and I've heard at different times, it said that uh, it was a, a, a striking thing when uh, uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, as though this was some new and novel thing. And and it's possible that it was to the the Jews at that day, because their tradition had set aside the word of God. But it was not new nor novel to the word of God, that level of intimacy between God's people and him. First of all, his God, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he said that many, many times. And he talks about us us being to him as, as his sons and as his daughters. But we look at different passages and we see an even greater intimacy that is revealed to us in the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 16, God says this. He says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Ba'ali. Right? Sometimes it's not as clear as I'd hope. (laughs) Ishi means my husband. Ba'ali means my Lord. Isn't that interesting? He says, you're not going to call me my Lord, but you're going to call me my husband that it's, it's God himself in speaking to his people that he speaks of that type of intimacy. That's why he had his prophet Hosea go out and marry a woman to begin to show the picture of, of the relationship between God and himself. That's why when Ezekiel was asked to prophesy at one point, he said, you're gonna, you're gonna prophesy, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your wife from you in a stroke. And he takes the desire of his eyes in a moment and he says, you're not allowed to weep. Because he wants the people to see that, that that you moving away from me is like losing a spouse. And he talks about that intimacy that, that exists between God and His people. And this beautiful picture in the book of Isaiah, which is Hosea, which is one of the most beautiful pictures of, of the relationship of Christ and His church. And he uses this image, but it's not just an obscure minor prophet. That he says this, he says this in Isaiah, which is the chief of all of the prophetic books, the the classical prophetic book in chapter 54 and verse 5. And he says, for your husband is your maker. And what is that husband maker's name? His name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. You see, the clear indication of this passage is that God himself wants to be known as our husband, that we are the bride of the Lamb, and there is that intimacy of relationship. Now, you, you, you hear it said, you know, that we, we, we don't pick our, our family members, right? We love them, but we don't pick them, and, and I see some knowing nods, and, and we do love them. But you know, there's one family member you did pick, right? That's your spouse. To your spouse you said, I want to be with you forever. It was a mutual choice. In the same way as we are the spouse of Christ, he has chosen us and we have chosen him. And there is the beauty of the intimacy which is found in that relationship. And it's a wonderful thing. And it leads me to think about the first woman when she was made. That God made her from Adam's rib to be his spouse. Now they chose each other. There, there, there weren't other fish in the sea at that moment, but anyway. Um, but but uh, they, they chose to uh, love one another. Have you ever read Matthew Henry's commentary on that? It's just really beautiful. And I think when I think about our relationship with Christ, I think about this. Because he says that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think that's a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. That he talks about out of the side, that he may be equal. Now that isn't that we're equal with God, but but there is an element, isn't there? That Jesus said that we would be one just as he and the Father are one, and that we'd be one with him. Isn't there that element? That that, that he wants that. He could have just had us as his slaves. He could have just had us as citizens, and he basically rules over us. He could have had us as his family, as his children, His sons and daughters, and all of those are true. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted us to be his spouse, his bride. And so he's decided to be equal, but then under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. And this beautiful picture that's used of of Adam and Eve and is used of husband and wife is used in, in a picture in my mind between God and his church, between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that type of intimacy that he offers to you. And that one day we will experience fully And completely. He's your husband. Glory in your husband. Glory in your husband. Which means draw close to him. Seek him out. Individually, but also as a body. As a congregation. What if we were to to join hands, to put our arms around one another, and say, together, let's move forward to be closer to our Savior, who is our husband. Let us draw near to Him and glory in Him. Let's glory in Him by spreading His fame throughout all of the world that all would know that we are related to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our husband. We are unreservedly committed to Him. And that's who we are. And let the world know and let the world be invited. Isn't that why the vision of Providence Presbyterian Church is that we we want to see every man, woman, and child trusting Jesus Christ? Not every man, woman, and child is a Christian, but every man, woman, and child trusting Jesus Christ, having that intimate relationship with Him, because He is our husband. Not just our husband, He is also the Lamb. We read again that we are the wife of the Lamb. The word Lamb is used 29 different times in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation focuses upon the Lamb, the Lamb who is worthy to break the seals upon the book of life. The book of life has been sealed up when man sinned, And all of those names that are written in it have no hope of salvation because of sin unless one is worthy to break the seals and open the books and the Lamb is the one who is worthy. That's why John speaks of him, uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 as behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees him as the sacrificial Lamb, as the substitutionary atonement that he will take our place. And he's not only our husband But he is our substitute who has died on our behalf. So we have that type of a relationship. As I think about him as the lamb, I think about Isaac. Remember that moment for Isaac? He's tied up and he's laid on top of the altar. He sees the glint of the knife in his father's hand. He sees it ready to come down and he hears the voice of Almighty God say, Abraham. Abraham, and Abraham turns, and there in the thicket is a ram. Isaac is cut loose, the ram is placed upon the altar, and the lamb is slain. You think Isaac was a little bit thankful for that ram? How thankful are we for the lamb, Was our husband? Receive his love for you. Because he took that spot willingly. We celebrate Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus, but Jesus came to be a man, that he might live a perfect life, that he might die upon the cross, that he might be placed into the tomb, that he might rise from the dead, that he might rise back up into heaven, so that you can be there with him. Believe that he has done that for you. The first characteristic of the church is that we're intimately related to Jesus. The second is that we're chosen. This book of life that we've talked about, and we begin to think about what is the book of life. The book of life is a book that God wrote before the earth was formless and void, before there was such a thing as time, before there was such a thing as space. I don't mean outer space, I mean spatial existence. Before God said, Let there be light he spoke the names that were to be put into the na- into the book of life and that book was sealed up because of sin those names were chosen by god before the foundation of the world consider verse 20 uh, chapter 21 verse 10 he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god Jerusalem is what he showed us. Consider Jerusalem for just a moment. We think about Jerusalem and, and you know, what is Jerusalem? All right, it was the capital of Israel and then it became the capital of Judah. And uh, I don't know a whole lot else beyond that. So what what is this Jerusalem? Well, let's uh, consider it from uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. God could have could have chosen any city right could have chosen Nazareth could have chosen Galilee could have chosen uh, Bethel could have chosen uh, any you know Paris uh, had he I, I might have but anyway but uh, but he chose Jerusalem as the place where he would put his name, the city of peace, which if you remember Melchizedek was the king of Salem, quite possibly Jerusalem, and that's where he he served and a priest in that place. It, but here he chooses Jerusalem. So as we see that the church is Jerusalem, we see a part of it is God's choice. Now, I read this in, in Harper's Bible Dictionary about Jerusalem, and I'd like to just kind of share that with you because I think it, it shows something of the exalted nature of, of the city. It says, "...situated at the edge of the Judean desert, it was an arid climate. Its land is agriculturally poor, and its limestone base has no minerals of value." Strabo, a Greek geographer of the first century A.D., described it as a place that would not be envied, one for which no one would fight. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) That's, That's Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem's greatness wasn't found in its mineral value. Jerusalem's greatness was found in that God chose it, right? Isn't that a little bit like the church? We're not elect for our greatness, but we're great because of our election. It's God's choice of us that makes us significant. It's God's choice of the church that makes it magnificent. And it's chosen to be holy. He calls it the holy city, Jerusalem. Ephesians 1 Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He chose us for what? To be holy. Now holy means set apart, set apart to God. Think of that, to be set apart to God. That's what it means to be holy. How is the church set apart? It's set apart to God, which reminds me that the church does good in this world, right? A part of what we do is we alleviate some level of suffering. We alleviate some of the, the effects of poverty in some lives. That's why we do some of the special offerings that we do. We're going to have Robin McMahon come and talk to us about this, this farming initiative that's, that's going throughout Africa, but particularly with its uh, application in Zimbabwe. We pray for uh, Christians in these, in these lands that are facing this, this impoverishment, and we ask. But that's not our primary purpose, is it, to alleviate hardship and suffering? That's not the primary thing that we do. We pray for our government. We pray on a regular basis. But the church is not a political organization that's supposed to try to somehow control the governments of the world, right? That's not what we're set apart to do. What are we set apart? How are we set apart to God? We're set apart to God in three primary ways, and they are the primary means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. The first is the Word of God. The Word of God is what sets us apart. We have God's Word. It isn't something that we've written. It's something we haven't come up with. It's God who has given it to us. And it is the revelation of himself, and so we believe it, and so we teach it to one another, and we speak it to one another, and we sing it to one another, and we preach it from the pulpits, and we read it and open it up privately and corporately. The Word of God sets us apart. Prayer sets us apart. Now, there are other, other uh, religions and religious uh, gatherings in which they will pray, but they're not praying to the true and the living God. Those prayers are only offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There's no prayers that are offered to to God, the true God, that are heard, except those that have come through Jesus Christ. And we gather together and we pray in Jesus' name. And that sets us apart unto him. And then the sacraments, which are these holy institutions established by Christ by which the the, uh, blessings of the covenant are signified and sealed for us as believers. And that's the, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And these three means of grace set us apart as the church unto God. We are chosen to be holy. The question then comes Will we trust his work? Look at verse uh, 10 once again. He says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Isn't that interesting? It's coming down out of heaven. It's not rising to heaven like the Tower of Babel did, right? Which was man's effort to try to build this tower up to heaven that God stopped. But this is a city which coming down from heaven tells us that it's designed by God and it's perfected by God. And when it's just what he wants, he brings it down to the earth. Then it is his work, not ours, which becomes the place where we rest. It's his work. His work, that He died for our sins. His work, that He lived the perfect life for us. His work, that He gives us His Spirit, who empowers us to seek Him. If I'm going to trust that, I'm going to admit my sin. And a part of trusting it is I get comfortable admitting my sin. It's not a big deal, because Jesus handled it. And so when confronted by the Spirit or by someone else, I'm able to say, Yes, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Because I believe that Jesus has died for it. It also means that I'm able to rest in His righteousness. I don't have to promote my own righteousness. I also can believe that He's died for me and I can believe it enough that I'll follow Him. And I'll turn from my sin and go after Him. But there's another element of trusting His work. I need to trust His work not just in my life. I need to trust His work in your life. When we find ourselves in conflict with other Christians the reality is aren't we forgetting the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf? When we begin to treat other Christians as enemies are we not forgetting that Jesus has died for their sins and that we're calling an enemy an individual who is the beloved of God? But if I believe in the finished work of Christ for that other person I can begin to treat them as beloved. So we are chosen. The two distinguishing characteristics we've looked at so far is that we're intimately related to Jesus and we're chosen. The third is that we can be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. Verse 11, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. I think about Genesis 2-7, which says, um, God formed us of the dust, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And I talk about this regularly because I think it's a, a, a very significant passage. But what I'm noticing is that God formed man out of the dust. Now, as man was there, he wasn't just a, a, a massive dust bunny, Right? But God had taken the dust and he would formed it so that man had skin. He had uh, uh, eyes. He he had uh, uh, blood and heart and all this is pumping. But he was still lacking something, right? He didn't become a living being until God filled him with his own breath. In the same way, the church may have all of these bodies in it, but until the spirit fills it, it's not the church. It's not alive. But it's His Spirit that makes it alive. They're coming down with, with glory. That is to say that we're going we're gonna to show God's glory. The Spirit will cause us to show the glory of God. He says, having the glory of God. It's the Spirit that produces the glory of God in the church. It's the Spirit who glorifies God, who reflects God. How does He do that? The Spirit does that by producing holiness in our lives. Think about in Galatians chapter 5 in the fruit of the spirit what are the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self control right that's the fruit of the spirit that's what the the spirit is producing in us that is that is holiness because he goes on to say uh Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is to say, they have been set apart from their flesh. And they're set apart unto God. There's a holiness that is there. And the fruit of the Spirit is is demonstrating that holiness. And it's produced by the Spirit. The Spirit produces holiness and glorifies God. The Spirit also produces unity, which glorifies God. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is the Holy Spirit that has produced unity among us. And the reason the Holy Spirit has produced unity among us is because Jesus prayed to the Father that we would be one. And the Spirit is accomplishing that. And as we live as one, we are glorifying God. We are glorifying Jesus, showing that the father has heard the prayers of jesus and is answering that among us and god is glorified we have the glory of god as the spirit produces unity we see the glory of god as the spirit produces holiness and we see the glory of god when the spirit produces reconciliation 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That as we see men, women, and children coming to salvation, coming to be reconciled with God the Father, we see God glorified. And how does a person come to that place of reconciliation? But through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's the Spirit who produces this. It's the Spirit who gives us, who places the glory of God upon us. And the invitation to us is to simply yield to the work of that Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He juxtaposes two ideas. That of being drunk with wine, none of you understand what that would mean. Let me explain. Uh, that it would begin to allow the alcohol to affect the way that you see things, right? It will affect the way that you hear things. It will affect your speech. It'll affect your your reflexes. It'll affect your balance. It'll affect your perception. That's the way the alcohol will affect you, right? And he's saying instead of letting alcohol affect you that way, let the Spirit of God affect the way that you see things. Let it affect the way that you speak. Let it affect what you hear. Let it affect your perspective. Let it affect your balance. Let it affect your reflexes. Let the Spirit of God be the one that transforms you. And that juxtaposition is powerful. And how do we do that? How do you get drunk? You put yourself in the presence of the alcohol, right? You consume it, and that's going to happen. How are you going to get filled with the Spirit? You've got to be putting yourself in the spot where He is. You've got to be drawing close to Him, and then as you draw close, yield. You know those times when you're not yielding, right? At that moment, say, no, 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 I'm going to follow. So we see that the Spirit shows God's glory, but the Spirit also makes the church precious. Look again at verse 11. He speaks of us as a very costly stone. A costly stone. It's kind of cool today to speak poorly of the church. And to talk about how, how bad the church is, right? Even as Christians that we want to uh, uh, criticize the church. And, and I've seen that in preaching, that it's, it's, it's I, I think it's kind of like uh, picking low-hanging fruit, that let me just talk about what's bad in the church. And I'm always going to talk about what's bad in the church. And, and I found that I'm, I'm not really drawn to books that do that or sermons that do that. I, I find it a, a little bit problematic. There was a, a quote that was going around a number of years ago that was attributed to Augustine, and it was, the, the church is a whore and the church is my mother. Um, and I, I had problems with that in several different fronts. The first is, Augustine never said it. That's a problem, right? If we're, we're attributing something to someone, and they never actually said it. But I have other problems with that, because I think about, would Jesus like us to call his bride a whore? I kind of don't think so. Um, I might, My sanctification might be pushed, and violence might come from me if you called my wife something like that. I would not be happy at all. Can I imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ would like that? I don't think so. Does Jesus ever call his church anything like that? What are the words that he uses? I think um, beloved, right? I think he says something like, as a lily among the thorns, so is my beloved among the maidens. Isn't that what he says about the church? Doesn't he call the church his saints, his godly ones? Shouldn't I speak about the church the same way Jesus does? And it allows me then to see the church in the same way that the psalmist saw it. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 3, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Oh, how I love your church, Lord Jesus Christ, because she is a costly stone. I want to learn to see the Spirit in you. I want to learn to see God's Spirit in every aspect of the church. Um, I don't know whose Facebook had this meme this week. um, And someone I hope will come and tell me. It was mine, uh, but it was someone in our congregation and and I I really liked it. And I'm going to summarize it. Uh, It's a man says to his son, watch where you step. And the son says to his dad, you watch where you step because I'm walking in your footsteps. I grew up in Colorado and I understand what it's like to walk in someone's footsteps through the snow. And you are just literally walking in their footsteps. And so there's that element. And as you're doing that, it's like, yeah, and as long as you're watching your steps, I'm okay. And, and that, you know, but from a metaphorical standpoint, it really grips my heart. think of how important it is to give that example and that the child says you're the one who's going to do it right and I'm just going to walk where you walked I'm going to follow the example that you've given to me because I trust you I'm a romantic at heart not the kind of romantic that sends Robin cards on a regular basis and every Thursday has uh, flowers of different uh, types coming to her house but the type of romantic who believes that man is a heroic being. I really believe that. And I love examples and stories when man reaches his potential. Isn't it great? In whatever way, but he touches greatness. Well, see, I think that what we see in Revelation 29, 9 through 11 is a view of the church in all of her glory, what she ought to be and what she will be and what God envisions and sees. And it, and it inspires me. And I hope that this meditation inspires you and that together we can say, I want those distinguishing characteristics to be true of providence. That we too are a church in which we're intimately related to Jesus Christ. We are a church who are chosen by God, and we are a church filled with God's Spirit. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we turn to you, and we ask that you'll search each of our hearts, that each one of us will see ourselves the way you see us and that the way you will see us and that we'll be inspired to be these people. I pray for this congregation, Lord. Will you place your mark upon us? Will you mark us as men, women, and children with an intimate relationship with you who believe that we are chosen? by you. Father, would you give us these marks for Jesus' sake. Amen.